Praise the Lord. I want to uh, personally thank everyone for being a part of our rally. And we've had a broad spectrum of ministry, touching many, many different subjects. And uh, trust that God's been helping you, giving you perspective, amen, and blessing. Appreciate your support, your prayers, and uh, amen. We count it a privilege to be able to host this for you, amen. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. I want to minister something that probably two weeks ago I was inspired uh, uh, thinking about this subject and inspired that I haven't preached this for a while. And so I want to minister on a message I've entitled, How's Your Wine, from, from Luke 5. And uh, harvesters' rallies are always a <clears throat> great time for workers and potential disciples uh, to be refreshed and encouraged and to be challenged. And in every work of God, I was thinking about this, there are different phases that we go through personally and especially the church goes through seasons and phases as a church begins to apprehend and seek God for its destiny. And every church has a destiny. How many believe that? We don't just, you know, we're not just taking up space. You know, when Jesus said, occupy till I come, he didn't mean just take up space, okay? Hallelujah. Understanding those particular phases and seasons that uh, we go through in our own life as well as the church will help you to provide ministry that has a vision so that people can understand the times and seasons and uh, have the vision that they need to get where they need to go in God. And so just like the measure of oil in a person's lamp, in the, uh, you know, the parable of the ten virgins uh, mentioned in Scripture, is symbolically used <clears throat> to, reference, uh, to reference to God's Spirit and the supply of God's Spirit in our life. Wine is also used to draw attention to uh, the quality and the Spirit that we have for God. And there's a number of parallels that the Scripture draws uh, concerning our spiritual condition. In Luke 5, verse 36 familiar portion of scripture, and he said, he spake also a parable unto them, saying, No man putteth a piece of new garment upon an old. If otherwise, then both the new maketh a rent, and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. And no man putteth a a new wine into old bottles, else the new wine will burst uh, the bottles and be spilled, and the bottles shall perish. But new wine must be put into new bottles, and both are preserved. No man also, having drunk old wine, straightway desireth new, for he saith, the old is better. Amen. This has been used many, many times to illustrate a number of things. I want to look at it in a different perspective again uh, this morning. In all the illustrations that Jesus uses and refers to in this parable, he's emphasizing how that new and old in many ways are not compatible. They sport against each other, Uh, they are, uh, especially when they're set in their ways, when the new and the old are set in their ways, they have nothing to do with each other. They challenge each other, they sport against each other. And so uh, we all know that Jesus was using this parable because the old religious community that he was constantly dealing with and they were constantly rejecting his message and his ministry, uh, like Pastor uh, Mitchell uh, spoke this morning, uh, you know, here they are, they're all upset, and yet none of those things ever took place in their, in their religion. And so, uh, you know, uh, Christ's ministry was far too radical for them. 
And he's dealing with the condition of their hearts by this illustration. And it seems like all their references, the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious community, all their references were long gone. They were frozen in time. In other words, they didn't, they didn't leave uh, just that old experience uh, and, uh, and uh, go on to the, uh, the destiny that God had for them, but they, they were frozen in a time period that simply wasn't happening anymore. Moses and Abraham, the ones that they were constantly referring, uh, referencing off of, were gone. They were long gone during Jesus' generation. And Jesus said, listen, if you really believed in Moses and Abraham and all the, you would believe in me because they spoke of me. And so they were so far disconnected from even the people that they reference off of. Now, there are three spiritual phases a work of God will pass through, and they all last for specific seasons. Amen. And we are not in control of how long they last, or we can't switch those seasons to be in the season that we would like to be in. We can't extend them. We can't cut them short. We simply need understanding to deal with them, get through them victoriously, or we're going to become just like the old religious community that Jesus had to deal with. It's not going to be good. It's not going to be convenient. Amen. And so <clears throat> I want to look at the first phase a work of God goes through, and especially uh, in the life of a new believer, and that is the new wine experience. <clears throat> the new wine experience. <clears throat> this is always truly an exciting time. As the scripture says in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new cre uh, creature, Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. After spending a great amount of time having, a, uh, having to subdue and ignore your conscience because of the terrible lifestyle you were living before salvation, salvation provides a clean slate. And just the virtue of a clean slate or a clean conscience before God gives a person tremendous peace in their life. No longer are they always suspicious that, you know, there's going to come a hand and squash them in a moment's time, but they have a clean slate now. Everything is new. Just like a newborn child with all brand new body parts. Amen. I, I long for those body parts. Amen. <laughs> the beginning days of your salvation is glorious because it is a brand new beginning. No matter how old or young you might be, all things become new because of salvation. And so this represents a time of great spiritual vitality, enthusiasm, excitement, and spirited service and praise to God. Whenever a work is new, uh, there's always a new wine quality among the believers there. They, everything is made new. They have a brand new beginning. They're excited, man. Just like, you know, uh, the excitement of a nursery. Every, you know, all the kids are screaming and carrying on. And, you know, and, uh, you know, that's what it's like to be new in Jesus. Amen. Now, this is going to happen in young converts because it, it's an indication of a healthy spirit that uh, has the possibility of prospering and growing in the things of God. And so people have to be excited if they have a brand new life and they if they're drinking that brand new wine that Jesus gives. We should be suspicious if it doesn't happen. Yeah, God's really moving. Well, that's, there's no indication of that in your church services. I mean, there's no excitement, there's no, there's no victory, there's no enthusiasm. And so uh, new wine experience is a very essential part of the birth of any church and any Christian. Established works need to be very careful that they don't put their mouth on what God is doing. 
Young converts should always be enjoyed and their spirit never quenched. They need to be encouraged. Hey, but there's insanity. That's right. You know, show me a sane baby. Okay? That's what they do. I mean, they're just coming in the world. They come in screaming and kicking. And that's a healthy part of the phases of a church. The joy of new Christians always enhances the spirit of the local church. That's why you need to see people saved all the time, because that adds a dimension to your church. Like Jesus said in the text, uh, that new wine, it's explosive in quality, and it causes spontaneous spiritual explosions. Enthusiasm, zeal, excitement, and joy are always contagious spirits uh, that uh, catch on to everything else around them. And that's, what, that's the type of infectious atmosphere that you need in a healthy church. It needs to be new converts born all the time. That new spirit of revival and enthusiasm is designed by God to blow up religious people. It's a fact. That church on Lincoln Street that the fellowship first started in, when God began to bring all these questionable characters from society, some of the old religious people were very upset, saying, what is going on? What is our church becoming? You know, everybody's been praying for revival. God brings it right into the church, and people are saying, what is this? And so, you know, you've got to be very, very careful because the new wine is designed to blow up religious, the religious spirit. I've been saved 40 years now, and I still hate religion because it's not the answer. Jesus is the answer. And so, you know, uh, it's like light and darkness. The old religion and the new wine do not agree. They have nothing in common unless they grow according to the processes of God. That's why Jesus said you can't take that new wine and put it in an old bags. It's going to blow up. And so it's, it's amazing because that religious spirit that Jesus dealt with in his generation still exists in Israel today. And when I went to Israel in the mid-90s, it's amazing to see these Orthodox Jews that still resist any new thing, any progress, and they're still referencing off of Moses and Abraham. Nothing has changed since Jesus' time. And the spirit of that old wineskin has a mantra that you hear over and over again, and it's people who are always saying, you can't do that. Every time they have an archaeological dig, especially by the old city of Jerusalem, you have all the Orthodox Jews that come out dressed up in all their religious garb, arguing with the people the moment they put a shovel in the ground, how you can't do this, you need special permission from the Antiquity Society, you can't change this, do you have a permit to dig here? And they're out there, I saw them, our, our tour bus passed them. I asked, I asked the tour, what's going on there? Oh, well, they're trying to have a new archaeological finding over there, they're digging, and the Orthodox Jews are there, they're arguing, they don't want any, any, anything dug up anywhere. They sincerely think that they're trying to preserve the evidence of God when, in fact, they're doing just the opposite. They are modern-day Pharisees that police everything. And just like in Jesus' day, the spirit of you can't do this, you can't say that, you can't teach this, uh, you can't take that, you can't eat that, you can't carry that, it still exists today. The Pharisees didn't die, they're everywhere. Zeal and enthusiasm represent the new wine experience of salvation. It has all the signs of a newborn baby. 
The Bible even draws some parallels about uh, uh, the baby and the childlike faith. Uh, Matthew 21, 16, And he said unto them, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus said unto them, Yea, have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings uh, thou hast developed, uh, has perfected perfect praise. These people that are touched by God and they're just praising God and thanking God for what they've done, uh, they're brand new converts, uh, and out of their mouth, uh, as they're worshiping God in the Spirit, perfect praise is perfected. The very thing that the old religious community was constantly condemning, said, no, no, perfect praise uh, comes out of the mouth of babes, just like a newborn baby. They just just come into the world crying out to God. 1 Peter 2, verse 2, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. And so, you know, pastors that are pioneering churches, uh, you got to watch what you feed your people. Don't give them knives to play with. Don't keep putting, you know, uh, uh, steak and cheeses in front of them. How about apple juice? How about applesauce? How about ground up veggies? How about going light on the diet? They have no teeth. So stop feeding them mature food. Say, well, I don't want to stoop down to that level. You have to. You have to. That's part of the glory of the work of God. That the new wine experience, it's an exciting time. Just enjoy it. I mean, babies are to enjoy. You don't constantly say to your infant, when are you going to grow up? It's ridiculous. You enjoy them. They're a joy to your life. They make you smile. Doesn't young converts make you smile? They come in and they got all kinds of stuff, you know, uh, tattooed all over them, pierced through them. Yeah, you know, it's fine to come into church that way, but you're not supposed to stay that way. If they're still doing that 10 years or 12 years down the road or 20 years down the road, then you've got some problems. You're still serving them applesauce. (laughs) But you need to enjoy that new wine experience. The only thing that Jesus warned about as far as the new wine experience uh, and the enthusiasm of the new wine experience is that it would be rooted properly. And that's the job of the pastor, of the shepherd, to make sure that he's imparting vision and a proper foundation for growth to take place. Matthew 13, 20, But he that received the seed in stony places, the same as he that heareth the word and the noun with joy receiveth, yet hath no rooted himself, but endureth for a while, when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended, and they usually fall away because there's no root. It's all excitement. It's all a hype. It's all, you know this program, that program, and it's all to appeal to that secular or social atmosphere rather than to be rooted in the things of God. It's not all just emotion all the time. The joint excitement is supposed to be a result of the spiritual reality that has taken place on the inside. The next phase, and if you're in the new wine phase right now, stay there and get every last drop of it because it's going to change. Mark it down. Pastor says it's going to change. It is. It's going to change. Because new wine experience is basically an experience in God that hasn't gone through anything yet. All they've been, they've been rocked. They've been cradled. They've been fed. They've been catered to. And that's good. But it's, it's going to change. And the second phase which is probably the most dangerous, is the midlife phase. Yep. This is the comb-over Photoshop phase. 
And it represents a phase where self-deception becomes a real possibility. (laughs) See, the beginning of a Christian life is great. The end of the righteous is glorious. The middle is a pressure. The middle is a pressure. (laughs) One evangelist used to say all the time when the revival was over, he said, thanks for coming. He said, yep, that was a pressure. <laughs> so, you know, that, and that's good because the pressure needs to be on you when you minister. Get something from God. And so this, is, uh, this mid, uh, midlife uh, time is the time when you start to realize, you know what, I wasn't that good after all. I've been really photoshopping my past. And all of a sudden people start to deal with reality for possibly the first time in their life. And they can either stabilize themselves by becoming mature. That's a good response to the new wine experience. And by dealing with reality and uh, becoming responsible and finally grow up. Or you can try to be something that is not happening anymore and lose your mind. The mid is the hardest part. It's called a midlife crisis, and it happens in every level of existence. It happens to you physically. When there's no longer enough hair to spread around. When the brain cells are hard to connect. When things start deteriorating. And, uh, and you know, it happens physically. It happens spiritually. Obviously, the people that Jesus dealt with, they was, had spiritual old age, man. They had a spiritual crisis. It can happen visually. When people are in the middle, they start to see things differently. It's like, what is wrong with you? You're not seeing what you used to see anymore. It happens socially. It happens mentally, and it happens emotionally. And all of a sudden, all these elements start to come into the picture, whereas before, they were subdued by the new wine experience. Now, you're in the middle. Now, you've uh, experienced some things, and now, you're in the insanity mode. This is where you can think, or rather deceive yourself into thinking, I know everything now. I've uh, been down a few roads. And you're basically, I'm all set, as they say over here. I'm all set. Don't eat anything. Okay, I know exactly what to do. Um, The all-knowing, all-seeing, all-everything. Though it can happen in different ages, studies show that the noticeable changes in behavior occur at age 42. How many of you are just in your 40s now? Some of you are afraid to raise your hands. Okay. Don't give yourself away. And the similarity to many going through that midlife crisis seems to be, listen to this, the willingness to abandon everything and seek something else. That marks the spirit of a midlife crisis. Their life and their spirit starts to unravel. They become mentally unstable. They seek change, but not necessarily godly change. They step into the realm of fantasy. They entertain fantasy quite often. They think about, uh, you know, their stud muffin days. 
And, uh, you know, they have on many levels of what many uh, specialists call an affair of the mind. An affair of the mind. This could be in the realm of pleasure. It could be in the realm of relationship. It could be in the realm of material vices and addictions. Uh, it could be you know, the old days and lifestyle before salvation. All of a sudden, you know, the old girlfriend surfaces again. And it's always mixed with knowing in your heart of hearts, this is not right before God, but I'm going to do it anyway. It has to do with an inaccurate assessment of themselves and their own value. They start to think about it again. They start to really think about what's happened so far, and it's like, no, 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 no. I'm not, I don't know if I want to go in this direction. It's a midlife crisis. Relationships are always affected at midlife crisis time, and they usually lose their gravity and destroy their testimony and their accomplishments, and a large percentage of them will regret their midlife insanity for the rest of their life. They'll look back in their old days, I should have never, ever done that. Now, this is a real phase that an individual and a congregation will go through as well. There are midlife crises in church growth as well. I have some letters to illustrate what this crisis is all about in the secular world. And I want you to bear with me as I read some of these because it's worthwhile to hear uh, some of these uh, uh, defining moments that some of these people in midlife crisis go through. One letter says it's really difficult to know how to be supportive of a spouse that is going through all the questioning of the turning 40s crisis. I see his life as successful. He is good and, and talented at what he does. He has a family, a home. He's got a good bank account, but just can't be satisfied. As though trying to meet some definition of success that the rest of us can't see or understand. My father picked us all up and moved us to a farm in Nebraska at the stage of his, in his life. I have to pre-sort the mail or he'll be drawn into just one more money-making scheme. My midlife crisis is going to be hormonal and physical. But why are men so discontent even when they have made something out of themselves? So here is a struggle that men go through at times. Here's another one. My husband, after 20 years is acting very strange. He says he wants to still be married, but he wants to live somewhere else. He says he still loves me. That isn't the problem. The problem is he wants freedom and he wants not to answer to anyone. He wants to still visit, though. I'm really confused. I'm told, I told him that he can't have both. And being married means that you are considerate of the other person. Is, there something, is this something that happens often or what? I'm confused. Someone else said, because this happened a little bit earlier than the normal age, can midlife crisis happen before you're 40? My husband's only 28. And I think he's going through a midlife already. I'm only 27. We're married for seven years and have two children. My husband is depressed all the time. He says that he needs to get away for a while, sound familiar, and sort out why he is feeling this way. He doesn't want to be at home anymore. Because he feels like he needs his own space. He's tired uh, uh, and he's tried to reassure us that he still loves us uh, and that it's nothing that we have done to push him out. I know my husband is confused and hates that he's feeling this way. He says he doesn't want to hurt us, 
but this is how he feels. What can I do? I feel helpless. That's a crisis. Here's another one. My husband of 26 years changed a lot in the last year. Was very much into all his past failures. In the, and uh, uh, what he did not get to do. That he want, always wanted to do. Of course, this is in a secular context. He belittled me all the time. He browbeat me over the last couple of months. He lived with me. He blamed me for everything he felt was wrong with his life. He was turned on to a cult-like organization similar to EST by his female boss when he started working there a year and a half ago. He went to a seminar and meetings. Their philosophy teaches them self-love and get rid of all the barriers in their lives, which I guess me and our son was to him. Crisis, midlife crisis. Here's another one. I'm a 40-year-old male with a beautiful wife. Did you ever wonder why this happens to, you know, I mean, you've got a, a handsome husband, a beautiful wife, and yet the midway point. Very interesting. I'm a 40-year-old male with a beautiful wife and a great 9-year-old daughter. Marriage for me has been great until six months ago when I almost got myself involved with another relationship. Nothing ever happened, but I started feeling emotions for this person Luckily, she got transferred. We used to work together in the same job. And after she left, I went through an intense period of guilt and depression because I know I love my wife dearly. Now I have doubts about everything in my life. I look at my wife strangely and feel out of place in our marriage. I keep thinking that there's got to be more to life uh, uh, than what I have now, even though I was always happy with my life before. I have doubts about ever getting married in the first place, uh, and the thought of it actually scares me. I feel like I want to run away from my responsibilities, even though I know it would be a mistake and I would regret it in the long run. I feel like I'm in such a rut, but I don't know what to do to change it. Why does this stuff happen? This is a real thing. There's another one. I'm 45 years. uh, I am 45 and my husband is having a major midlife crisis. He's 46. We have been married for 15 years. We have two. To make a long story short, he has left us for an old girlfriend and has gone back to his roots. He is wearing his clothes differently. He's combing his hair like he did when he was 20 years old. I have read men in midlife crisis. My husband is the classic example. They describe him to a T. Listen to this. He was a devout Christian. The best father and husband I could have ever asked for. I consider him my best friend. He moves out without a note or anything and served me divorce papers five days later. I'm shocked. Okay? The beginning in new wine is exciting. The middle can be a real crisis in people's lives. This is in a secular world. It's a known fact. But it also happens to people in the church. Some of this initial rebellion that happened in the 90s. All these guys were midlife crisising. Want to do something different. Now, these are some of the details of the crisis that people go through at the midway point. And so it seems that there comes a time when people are willing to walk away from everything. It's insanity. They are disappointed and unsatisfied with everything, and it's always someone else's fault. Uh, You know, it's the job, it's the wife, it's the children, it's the state, it's this town, it's this country. 
They don't even say goodbye. They just split. Midlife crisis. And in the spiritual aspect of a Christian's life, the same assault comes against Christians as well. Things don't turn out the way you thought. That's what life is all about. You can plan things, but that doesn't mean they're going to actually happen. You're uh, totally blessed. Over the years, God has enhanced your life and brought you off the dunghill and given you a meaningful life, and now you're still not happy. You're looking for something else. This is a strategy from hell, and everyone will face this midway point in their faith. This is what David went through. Here he is. He's a tender lad uh, with a heart on fire for God. Uh, uh, He had that new wine experience. Uh, He's made king of Israel. And we read of him committing adultery and murder to cover it up. So what happened? I'm convinced that in some cases people go through a period in their life where God wants them to firm up their roots in the faith. And it's usually after a level of success. When we're just a humble little shepherd lad watching our father's flock, there's not a problem. We get all inspirational. We can even write the Psalms and be inspired. But something happens. He's made king. He's got success now. And uh, and what happens is uh, uh, because of the success and lifestyle, they can neglect and think that they don't need anything. They think they are firm and established. And then they find themselves in the terrible crises of faith. They usually have a sophisticated strategy to protect their insanity or justify their insanity. They have to be tricked into being made to see what they have done. Nathan is sent to David, and and he's inspired by God to tell him a story. And, you know, this is how people have to be tricked into coming to their senses. In 2 Samuel 12, 1, Nathan says there are two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished it up. And it grew together with him and with his children, and it did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his uh, bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man. And he spared to take of his own flock. Probably had thousands of, uh, of, uh, from his flock that he could have taken one. He failed to take of his own flock and his own herd to dress it for the wayfaring man that was come unto him. But he took this poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, how spiritual we are. The man that has done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Wow. Nathan said, you're the man. You were increased. You had nothing. You were a poor, humble boy. You were made king. You had some success. And he says, David... You killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife. He would have never thought it possible to do such a thing when he was just a shepherd boy watching his father's flock. See, it's the insanity at the midway point that is usually the most dangerous and perplexing time in a person's life. 
Amen. See, the way out of this crisis is to pray. Pray through it that God would show you the end of your insanity. The reality in some of these letters that I read is some might never see their children again. Their wife will be someone else's wife. Their house someone else will live in. Their destiny someone else will obtain. They will eventually be bound, become desperate. Like the prodigal son who did the same thing. Another guy that went through crisis. You know, he's got an inheritance. He, I'm sick of this thing. You know, I'm sick of the fact that, you know, my father's a rich man. He's always blessed me. He's wonderful and gracious to me. I have an inheritance. Give me my inheritance now. I'm just going to walk out and leave everything. And so he does. <clears throat> and then he becomes bound and desperate. And the devil will turn their testimony and the years of their labors into a fable. When you step out of the will of God and when you decide to just leave and run away. They could, could lose everything because of the insanity of the midway point of their life. And so it happened to the prodigal, I would imagine. Here he is in this place of desperation, and someone who probably knew, knew him or, and knows his father say, yeah, isn't your father a rich man? Uh-huh. Doesn't he have many servants? Uh-huh. I wish I had a father like that. Then what are you doing in this pig pen? You have all this. And you come to this pig pen because you just turned your back and left everything? It's amazing. He had everything a person could have desired. He had a father that loved him. He had a position in the family. He had a great inheritance, but he left it all. He cashed it all in. He left his family, his home, his security, and his destiny. That was probably what a midlife crisis was back in those times. He came to his senses because he started to live out the results of his own fantasy. Did I really want to do this? It seemed to be a, a tremendous fantasy I was embracing back in my father's house. But now I'm out here, and now I'm coming to reap the fruit of my decisions. <clears throat> Can God show us the end of our ways? Can we have discernment enough to say, God, please keep me from evil? That's part of the Lord's prayer. Lead us not into temptation. And if we could just get that revelation, we wouldn't have to go through the terrible insanity we entertain at the midlife point of our faith. The third phase that gives us great hope is the beauty of maturity. Amen. Around the late 90s, I preached a revival in Prescott, which was funny. <laughs> they asked me to preach a revival. I said, you have Pastor Mitchell as your pastor. Why would you want anybody else but Pastor Mitchell to preach? But anyway, they asked me to preach there. I said, of course, I'll, I'll come in. And, uh, you know, I was nervous at first, but then I heard that, no, Pastor Mitchell is going to, he's preaching out of town, so it's just going to be you there. I said, oh, okay, praise the Lord. You know, it's like. <laughs> but anyway, I went there and I preached. And now here's a, here's a congregation that has heard, you know, 30, 40 plus years at that time of preaching, good preaching. And, you know, I've never went to the Prescott Church other than at a Bible conference where there's all kinds of people from all over the world there. I never was at the Prescott Church with just the Prescott Church there. Here's a congregation standing in the front lines for years, holding up the standards of faith and fighting the good fight. And the striking thing about these people, I noticed right from the very first message that I preached, sitting on the platform before I even began to preach, 
that these people have endured the good fight of faith and the beauty of their spirit as they sang and worshipped God in the song service was striking. These folks were singing like young converts. And yet, these are heavy warriors that I've seen every, every time I've gone to conference. They're, they're there. And yet, now I just see the Prescott Church, and there they are with their whole heart and soul and spirit, their hands lifted to God alone and worshiping and thanking Him. There was something so gripping about their praise to God. Uh, it was a beautiful thing. There's something about, uh, you know, Uh, being moved when you see people that have been through the many processes of life, uh, have gone through the new wine experience, have gone through the midlife insanity, and they're still standing firm in their faith, uh, still lifting their hands uh, uh, towards heaven, and still excited for God, and are still grateful. Thank you, Pastor, for preaching. Uh, God spoke to me. through. It's like, me? What do I have to say? They have grown and matured into God's will and purpose for their lives, uh, and there's a beauty about their maturity. I was thinking about Brother Fran Preston, who usually is with us all the time, 95, 96 years old, young. I was thinking about some of the senior citizens that we have in our congregation. When they lift their hands to God, they are lifting an entire life and history to God, and they're still standing for Jesus. There's something that is beautiful in the spiritual realm about that. There's something precious about this congregation and every congregation that has been 30-plus years old. When they still lift their hands to God faithfully, they still give. They're still at the altar praying. They have been through many deep waters, many struggles and trials and afflictions, and yes, seasons of insanity as well, and yet they're here, here still serving God, still worshiping God, and still living for God. There was a time when it would have been a reproach that your car would even be seen in our parking lot. Back in the 90s, when everyone on the local radio, they were talking for us for a couple of months about us. It's this, it's that, it's this. There are are times, you know, when, you know, uh, people from this church uh, that are here with us this morning, uh, you know, their husband or their wives, uh, they weren't saved. Uh, They were bad-mouthing and saying, leave that church. This have nothing to do with that church. And yet, uh, there they were. They parked their car in the parking lot. They came in here. They prayed. They lifted their hands towards God. There's something beautiful about that. See, people that are drinking new wine, it's exciting. But the thing is, they haven't gone through anything. It's all, yay, yay, yay. But that's going to change. In times of distress, people dig a little deeper. They took another drink of the wells of salvation. They got a little more new wine that they needed to make it through those times so that they can still stand today, now in their senior years or now 30-plus years down the road and still say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I believe more than ever before. Thank God that I wasn't following my own fantasy or someone's fable. Thank God that Jesus Christ is alive and well today in my life and he's still moving in my life. Our gathering today in this congregation is far more precious than when we first gathered in Saber's living room. Because when we were gathering there, we, weren't, we haven't been through anything yet. It was brand new faith. Nothing happened to us. Nothing challenged us. It was all hype and 
And it's a glorious thing. That needs to happen. If it doesn't happen, there's a problem. But nothing happened to us yet. We didn't have the entire nation talking about what we were doing. We didn't have nasty people back in the rebellion in the 90s saying this and opening up their own websites and railing on it. You know, it's like nothing happened to us when we were in Sabre's living room. We were just beginning. We just started drinking the new wine. And so this is a story about when maturity doesn't turn into old wineskin, but it's about the beauty of maturity. When a salvation experience is new, it's explosive, it's radical, it's vibrant and noisy, like the nursery floor of a hospital, but growing roots deep in Christ takes a lifetime. And in the text, Jesus speaks about the quality and stability of the old. And the new wine can spoil and turn into something detestable. And that is why he is telling the religious community that as far, they are far, as far from God and revival as heaven is from earth. But new wine is made to turn into a fragrant, stable, smooth, and desirable tasting product. Now, I was never a wine drinker. That wasn't my thing. So I looked up. I had to look, 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 like, look this stuff up and research it. Because you know, some of these people, you know, they have these professional wine tasters. And, I, you know, I always seen them and said, what are they doing? You know, they're pouring it and, you know, they're swirling it around and they're smelling it. And, you know, it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> and so I looked it up and said, you have two glasses of wine in front of you. Hopefully you don't. Each was made from grapes grown on the same vines, but the difference is they're 10 years apart. The glass on the left is young. It smells like ripe berries. And when you take a sip, it fills your mouth with tart bitterness. You swallow, and your mouth feels dry and slightly chalky. The glass on your right smells like earth and leather. The, fruitless, uh, the fruitiness is still there, but it tastes more subtle you swallow and your mouth feels fuzzy and warm. The flavors taper off slowly. If you're even a novice wine taster, which I hope none of you are, a properly aged wine tastes and feel very different from the younger version. What, what, what is it that, uh, why is it that some wines taste better as they get older while others get worse? See, Jesus is dealing with the the group of people where it got worse, the religious community. A bottle of wine might look like a closed system, but inside there are complex chemicals, transformations that scientists are still unraveling. However, there is a wide agreement that the most critical factor in the aging of wine are tannins. Tannins are a group of molecules that come from the grape stems, seeds, and skins. Tannins are present in all grapes and are generally produced by the plant as a defensive compound. Tannins have an antifungal property to them, but they also make the unripe grape taste nasty until the seed is mature. Not only do they taste bitter, but tannins bind the proteins that make your saliva slimy, stripping away the, uh, stripping away the, uh, the, the sliminess, leaving your mouth 
feeling dry, chalky, and ashen. This is like how a green banana leaves your mouth feeling after you have one. The feeling is called astringency. But tannins are also indirectly responsible for a wine smell. Tannins don't have any aromas themselves, but react with the wine's alcohols and acidic alcohols. To gradually subdue the flowery, fruity aromas of youth, they also combine with other molecules to help create the more complex and subtle smells characteristics of mature wines. Small amounts of oxygen leaking through the cap react with the tannins, helping prod along its chemical transformations with other molecules. But if the oxygen comes in too quickly, it will overwhelm the tannins and oxidize the other molecules, causing the wine to taste skunky, similar to how an an exposed apple turns brown. The wine acids are preservatives and help buffer against the rapid oxidation, giving tannins the time to neutralize the individual oxygen molecules. Now listen to what Jesus says in the text. No man having drunk old wine straightway desireth new, for he saith, the old is better. I wonder if you've ever heard it in that light before. Because the old is better. Listen to me. The old is better. The new hasn't been through anything yet. It's those people that have been faithful year after year in spite of all the assaults of hell that still come to church and lift their hands up. The old is stable. They've been through everything and they're still standing. The old, you know, is, is beautiful. It's desirable. It smells sweet. It's very practical. It's always the same product. It's always faithful. It always can be counted on. Old wine is actually better if it's gone through the processes of aging correctly. The reality is we need these three experiences in our life to progress in our faith. We all need the new wine experience, just like the chemical processes in that wine bottle that produces the desirable product. And we need the maturing process of our faith in the eyes of God, which is a beautiful thing. When you lift your hands to God 30 years later, it's very precious, very beautiful. When you tell your, lot, your wife of, you know, 46 years, you love her today, that means something far greater than it meant when I've got to have you, Rebecca back when you first fell in love. You didn't do anything yet. You didn't prove that you're going to work for her and support her. All you were on was a hormonal tidal wave. But now, 40 plus years down the road, when you say, I love you, it can be proven by your faithful service. Paul describes it this way in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. When I was a child, my speech, my feelings, and thinking were all those of a child. Now that I am an adult, I have no more use for childish ways. If you look at your youth pitches in your stud muffin days today and think, I was cool, there's something wrong with you. You need to go get a CAT scan. (laughs) You should be ashamed of them. They should be, that was, that's the time of insanity. 
And I'm not proud of those days. I'm not proud of what I've done. And thank God, by His grace, I got through it. And so, how is your wine? Some Christians never want to grow up. Others go crazy in the middle of their faith, and some come to a place of beauty and maturity, which is what God's will and plan is for our lives. How's your wine? Many years from your salvation, have you grown bitter or sweeter? And if you're here and you haven't been through anything yet, walk softly because it's going to change. Every Christian, all they that are in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You'll be misunderstood. You'll be slandered. You'll be victimized. They call Jesus a devil. He says, if they've done this to me, what are they going to do to you? And so your time is coming. And so, like I said, grab every drop of new wine you can and use it as a, a, a reference point to look back because God will call you back to that thing because you can still, you can be, a, you can be, an, old, uh, you, you can be uh, an old convert now but still have that new wine in your life. Because you've endured that season, and God has brought you through victoriously. There are some beautiful Christians in this place this morning. That you've been through some heavy warfare. Everything you can imagine has happened to you. You're still here. You didn't just check out. You didn't say, I'm leaving it all. No, you're still here. You're fighting the good fight of faith. You're fighting it through. And because of that, Listen to this, because this is what I want to close with. You always judge the essence of a work, not by the beginning. You don't judge the work by the new wine. And thank God you don't judge it by the middle. You judge it by the end. The finish line. How we go over that finish line. Amen. People that say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve God. They cross the finish line with beauty. They cross the finish line into the arms of Jesus with a full reward. And so those people that have stayed faithful and endured throughout these years, there's something beautiful God has waiting for you. And you're going to have some of that in this life. And some of it is going to come very soon. You know, it was Bonky that was in Africa 20 years before anything happened. And so Christianity is a life of investment. You put your life in the kingdom of God, just wait. And the tables will turn. And God will give you a favorable position. He'll let the lines fall in favorable places to you. And you'll have more in the latter end than you did in the beginning. Amen. Let's bow our heads for a moment.